welcome to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are returning once again to the corona crisis, but this time we're going to be talking about technology in the corona crisis, looking at surveillance and censorship. Technology will be the silent hero of the crisis that allows us to return to some kind of normality or whether it's yet another blow to the notions of liberal democracy and the crisis will end up dragging us further into being a sort of surveillance state and provide opportunities for all sorts of undermining of our of our politics. To help us make sense of all of these questions, I have an all-star cast from ECFR. We have Ulrike Franke, who's a policy fellow who's specializing on technology and foreign policy, particularly working on AI in, in recent times. Anthony Dworkin, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who's been doing a lot of work around the ethics of, of different technologies, including drones, one of Ulrike's favorite topics. And also, as a special guest, we're very happy to have Stephanie Hare, who's an independent researcher and speaker whose work includes a lot of interesting articles and speeches on biomedical metrics, surveillance, big data, and how they affect our civil liberties and human rights. And she's writing an upcoming book on technology ethics. Ulrika, why don't you start by setting the frame for this discussion? Technology really has been at the forefront of the debate at the moment. There are so many articles at the moment about how technology is going to save us from COVID-19 and how it's going to make it all better or how indeed it is creating a kind of dystopian future. Maybe to start somewhat comprehensively, I mean, we have indeed seen quite a lot of very sensible and good use of technology for a number of things. I mean, be it things like, you know, using robots for delivery, sometimes to disinfect areas. We've seen a lot of good examples of where 3D printing really can make a difference, where 3D printers were used to print elements for ventilators, parts for ventilators, these kind of things. That's certainly a positive development. We have a lot of good things that are on the horizon when it comes to to tech and the virus, such as using artificial intelligence in drug development and drug discovery. Now, this isn't something that has just appeared with COVID-19. In fact, that's already already been in the making. But of course, you know, the current the current crisis is really helping to some extent uh, firms that that work on on AI in healthcare and as I said, drug drug development and all of that uh, become more important, raise more money, all of that. However, there are also a number of concerning uses of tech. And I think the one thing we really should be talking about is everyone is worrying at the moment or thinking at the moment about how to end the lockdown once, you know, the peak of the infection um, is over. And one idea that is coming up again and again, is having some kind of proximity tracker, having some kind of app that will identify the people that can go out or identify uh, then infected and, and, and those that were close to them to tell them not to go out anymore, that kind of thing. And this is really something where tech and AI will play an important role, but we really need to get this right because there are enormous issues, especially when it comes to to privacy. You mentioned surveillance at the, the very beginning. This is really the main issue here. How do we create an app, if you consider this necessary? How do we create this app that allows us to end the lockdown, but doesn't catapult us into a brave new world where all our movements are tracked, where states can can tell who has met with whom, because once something like that is out there, I think it's really difficult to kind of roll back. So that's the kind of thing I'm most worried about. And I know that a lot of people 
in Europe and elsewhere are working um, at the on this topic. Um, we have an app like that in, in China where it is done in a way that I wouldn't want to see in Europe. I know that the European Commission is thinking really hard about how to do this in a way that isn't too disruptive when it comes to, to people's privacy. So yeah, I think that's that's something I would love to discuss with you guys. So Stephanie, you've been thinking a lot about ethical issues around technology and data. I mean, how worried are you about the sort of developments that are moving forward? Do you think that there are kind of good and bad technologies? People often counterpose China with democratic countries like Taiwan and South Korea and kind of see these as two separate routes. Well, I think there's a couple of points that I would want to make on that, which is that it would be really interesting for us to do a very rigorous benchmarking exercise to look at the countries that have mounted a really good response to this pandemic and did not require privacy violating civil liberties, violating technologies to do so. Because I think, you know, when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you're somebody who tends to be a technology solutionist, it's very tempting to just reach for the tech, you know, and build an app. Let's just hoover up everybody's data and we'll ask questions later. But that doesn't solve things like not having enough personal protective equipment for your healthcare workers. That doesn't address a lack of ventilators. It doesn't address why it takes certain countries longer to go into lockdown than it did others. And those are the things that arguably would have been far more effective for certain countries that are really struggling now and are the reasons that other countries have done so well. I think there's there's that point right there that before we reach for the technology solutions, perhaps we could get our analog house in order first. And that's expensive. That involves having extra capacity, you know, more hospitals, more beds, more personnel. So here in the United Kingdom, we've lost a lot of our nurses because of Brexit. They've returned back to different European Union member states. Those are conversations that we're going to need to have in the sort of post-pandemic reckoning to ask why are certain countries better positioned than others before we even begin to have a conversation about COVID tracking symptom apps, which may or may not be useful. But again, not so in a world of digital inequality where not everyone has a smartphone. Now, a lot of epidemiologists would say you don't actually need that. You need about 60 to 70% of the population to have a smartphone and then sign up to these apps in order for a technology solution to be effective. But we haven't seen anywhere like that where people have been signing up to these apps and using them voluntarily. The uptake has been more around 13 to 20% tops. So then you step into a situation where you say, are they voluntary and opt-in? Or do you require people to download an app? And now you're in a very, very different problem set of ethical questions, because now you're telling people you have no choice. Your ability to re-enter society or even just to function in society during this crisis depends on you putting on your phone and therefore potentially handing over your data to a government and potentially companies an app which a lot of people might not want to do in any other case. So it becomes really tricky. And then we move on to this question of so-called immunity passports, which is this idea that if potentially you've had coronavirus and you recover, you survive and you recover, in theory, you would be producing antibodies that after about 28 days would show up in a serology test. And therefore, if you could prove that you'd had it, you would get a sort of stamp, like an immunity passport stamp saying that you'd had it and you could safely re-enter society. The problem with that argument being, this is a new virus. We don't know. There have been reports of reinfection in certain countries in Asia. 
which would suggest right then and there that immunity isn't always guaranteed. We don't know if some people produce the same amount of antibodies as others, depending on what viral load exposure they've had. So this instantly becomes problematic. So the temptation to reach for the technology is actually really dangerous in a case like this, because the, the parts are moving so fast. It's so complicated. It's so uncertain. And it's constantly changing as our scientists and healthcare workers get more data that we could end up building something and rolling something out that makes things worse, both for the healthcare response and for the societal response. So would you agree with that, Anthony? I mean, I suppose some people would say that, that privacy is very important. It's a human right. But leaving your house is also a human right. In a way, there's a sort of hierarchy of rights at stake here. And we're right at the bottom of the Maslowian ladder in, in many places where people are literally not able to, to leave their homes or see their loved ones. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. You know, there is this aspect that in times of crisis, people look to their governments to protect them, and they're willing to give extra powers to government. We've seen that across a wide range of areas in both in Europe and across the world, where people are letting governments do things that they would be very wary of under other circumstances. And one of those things is allowing the government to control people's movements much more than they would normally do, allowing the government to say, you know, where you can go, when you can go, you have to stay at home, and so on and so forth. I think as part of that, governments, as Stephanie said, are reaching for technology to help them to do that. And there are a number of ways in which you can see the technology is sort of appealing, you know, in order to like one big concern is this question of tracing people who've been in contact with someone who's infected. That's uh, an important part of the public health response. So we can find out who might be at risk and quarantine them before they infect others. And then there's this question of people who should be quarantined. Are they staying at home you know, as they're supposed to. And then there's the question of people who have immunity and the immunity passports. So in all these ways, I think there is a temptation to look to the technology and, you know, some readiness on people's part to accept that. But I think the privacy concerns are real. And I think, in a way, the important discussion we should be having is probably twofold. Number one, what is it going to to take to make these kinds of technologies rolled out in a way that doesn't really infringe people's rights. And I think there are a number of ways that we can do that. For instance, the app that Apple and Google are thinking of of developing, that they say they're developing, um, which is a kind of contact tracing app. So it could be that that information is just kept on your phone. It doesn't have to be uploaded to anyone's server. You know, there's a big question about how much is the kind of voluntary compliance and how much is information being fed back to a central government or to some other source. You know, I think allied with that is that these technologies are going to require probably quite a high degree of public trust to work. So in that sense, I think some of the rights concerns and some of the effectiveness concerns could be linked. You know, if you have a situation where the government is mandating people, you know, saying they have to install an app or even as we've seen in Israel, where the the security service has been given license to track people's GPS and to pass that information on to the Ministry of Health. Under those circumstances, people could just start leaving their telephones behind. You know, I think it's much better to go down the route of kind of public acceptance and trust. You know, that is also likely to be more compliant with 
human rights concerns. I very much agree with Anthony's last point here. I mean, voluntary compliance really does depend on, on whether people trust whichever system ever um, they're being asked to to download. I mean, I think this is the only route that any of this can go down in, in the democratic states of Europe. I don't see our governments telling us to download something in a man mandatory way and people actually doing it. Um, I don't quite think that that's the, that's the answer. I think it's a very important point. Though. I mean, it, it, from our discussion, it almost sounded like, oh, tech, tech can't be the answer and why do we always turn to tech. I mean, I in, in this specific case, I actually do believe that tech has a lot to, to offer. But the point I really want to bring home is that we need to get this right. And I definitely think that I rather want the lockdown to last two weeks more than elsewhere if this means that Europe manages to, let's stay with the app, develop a contact tracing app that does, in fact, make sure that privacy rights are um, guaranteed. And just to, to put in a, a few facts here, I mean, the European Commission is, is working on this under the very cool name of PEPPT, which stands for Pan-European Privacy Preserving Proximity Tracker. And and the European Commission has also um, published some guidelines on on how such apps that we were talking about should be developed. And and I, I really like what I'm seeing here because, you know, they talk about strictly limiting processing of personal data. They emphasize respect for privacy. They want to ensure a regular review of continued need for processing of personal data. And very importantly, they, they also say that once this is no longer strictly necessary, the processing needs to be terminated and that data destroyed. And um, this is just to say that I think that there are ways of doing this in a way that does preserve privacy. There are temporary ways of tracking movement and all of that. And so I think it's just very really crucial to understand that this is the the important thing here can we unpack that a little bit i mean it'd be really interesting to first of all talk a bit more about this idea that it has to be voluntary i mean the lockdown's not voluntary it's far more intrusive in people's lives and far more offensive to people than us giving away data which we're giving away for free for much more trivial reasons than saving lives at the moment one of the reasons why they didn't introduce the lockdown in the uk is because they had a kind of idea that this would somehow fall foul of public opinion was in fact the public supports it massively in this country aren't all these notions about what's possible and impossible just changing dramatically if you need 60 to 70 percent of the population to have downloaded and used these apps then presumably it's a pretty small thing to to make it mandatory for for a period of time particularly if there are safeguards for for the data later on but it's the longer term implications i'm much more worried about i mean i'm i'm way more happy to kind of stay in my home for a few weeks but once that's over i can go outside again if i have downloaded this app if we have if we have opened this door of governments companies but we've opened this door we all use Google and Facebook, you know, the vast amounts of... I mean, you know my opinions about all of that. <laughs> But you're, you use Google and Facebook as well, don't you? I mean, you're giving away far more intimate details about your lives to these companies who do all sorts of dodgy things with them than what the government's asking for here. This is definitely something for, for, for Stephanie to, to answer. But A, I, I never believed that saying, okay, I've already given up X amount of my data, hence nothing matters anymore. I don't think that that's a good approach. Then there is a question of who do you give your data to? I mean, yes, I don't like giving my data to Google and I try to limit this, but do you, do you want to give that data to the state? And then also, I mean, what kind of data? I mean, we're talking about data, like where do you go and who do you meet? And just 
just imagine, you know, rather than tracing, have you met an, an infected person? This could be turned around by, oh, have you met this dissident we don't like? And what does that mean? And so I think we're opening doors here that once once they're open are very hard to hard to close. But those doors are already open. The intelligence agencies track people who they meet all the time. With They get telephone companies to help them do that. I mean, it's not like this is a new thing. So I have a slightly different take, I guess, from Ulrika on this, which is, you know, I think that there are middle ways between something being completely a voluntary opt-in and the the kind of scenario you're talking about, where I think we would be pretty uncomfortable with a kind of a blanket situation where the government has information about 60 to 70 percent of the population, who they're meeting, where they're going, under what circumstance. For instance, one of the things is this question of, is the software put on your phone, you know, automatically as an update to the operating system? Or is it something that you download by choice as an app? And as Stephanie was saying, you know, a lot of countries up to now have gone down the voluntary download route. Um, and I think that was the case in Singapore, for instance, you know, and even these East Asian countries with a kind of high degree of compliance with regulations, the, the rate of downloads has been quite low. But if it's something, and this I think is what Apple and Google are talking about, where it's installed automatically as an update on your phone, but then it's, you know, it alerts you and you then have to comply with the rules in terms of recognizing that you've been in contact with someone who was infected and then you choosing to alert the health authorities. That would be another possible route. And, you know, like you, Mark, I think there could be some kind of connection with coming out of the lockdown or people going back to work, um, you know, showing that you have downloaded the technology and that you're monitoring your movements and you're reporting your symptoms and and so on. So again, this is a kind of, you know, some somewhere between kind of blanket surveillance and mandatory compliance. But I, I do think that this point of one way or another, if people are not on board with the system, then it's just not going to work. They're going to find a way of getting around it. And so you have to have that kind of public consent. And that could be, for instance, to do with how the data is protected, who it's shared with, you know, how long these rules last, data gets deleted, you know, a clear endpoint to uh, these kinds of regulations and so on. So those are the kinds of measures to have something open and transparent is going to be essential to, to getting public consent in a democracy. Uh, so Stephanie, does that sound like it's something which is doable? And also, you know, who would you trust to be the ultimate backstop for all the, the things that Anthony was talking about? I guess I'm just not convinced that this is the best way of solving this problem. And I'll, I'll explain why in the sense that, first of all, I would want to know who is the app for? Is the app to help healthcare workers and public health authorities and epidemiologists to track the spread? Or is it also being shared with the police to, for instance, ensure compliance with a quarantine? So if you're one of those people who is self-isolating because you've simply come into contact with someone who's had coronavirus and they, you know, had it where we've had them tested and they've come back with a positive test, as opposed to I felt unwell and I think I might have had it, but I don't really know, right? So we're, you know, it's already so murky. If you don't have these apps backed up and supported by testing, they seem useless to me. Then there's the Bluetooth argument, which is Bluetooth is going to help you do more accurate pinpointing of a person's location than GPS. That's that's a compelling point in its favor, except that, you know, here in London, in my flat, for instance, I sleep 
with a wall between me and my next door neighbors, right? And the walls are very thin. If they were to come down and be tested positive, our phones are parked, I'm sure, on bedside tables on either side of this wall. The Bluetooth would not be able to distinguish between that. They wouldn't know that I haven't really come into contact with my neighbor. It would just come up as a positive, and I would then be put into lockdown when I haven't actually been exposed, right? So there's, and there's ways that you could work through that, I'm sure, and solve for that. But I guess my point is like, it sounds really good to be true. And it, I think it isn't yet. The testing part is the part that particularly here in the United Kingdom and in the United States, for instance, most concerns me. We just don't have a testing capability that would make these apps viable. And until we get, as I said, those analog pieces right, I think this, the rest of this is just a lot of running around being busy. But my second point about that, the health versus policing aspect, I think is really important, not just for the present crisis, what we would normalize for later. So we've already seen instances of the police over over policing, right, on some of the social distancing out in public or telling people that, you know, they might stop and search their shopping if they were found to be doing inessential shopping. And they've had to walk that back because of public outcry. And I just think we have to be so careful about what we would be giving potentially to the police. There are all sorts of reasons that people might need to leave their house that are not necessarily violating a lockdown or an isolation or even a quarantine case. But if the app is being given and the data is being given to the law enforcement and not to health workers, that's going to open up a totally different issue. And then you've got countries like South Korea, where if you don't have your phone on you, on your person at all times, so that you're able to be tracked and monitored, you could be subject to a fine. Now we're going to be starting to put extra work on the police so that they would have to be what potentially arresting people for not having their phones on them. Right. So like, we just have to really think through what we really want here. And I just think it would be a really important test and challenge for all technologists to say, is there any way that we could solve this problem without technology first? And if you can, you know, it's almost like the Hippocratic Oath for STEM workers. First, do no harm. Can you solve this without doing invasive surveillance? If you can, go down that route first. If you can't, then how do you absolutely minimize the amount of data you are taking? How do you do privacy by design, security by design, data minimization? What oversight will you have? What democratic accountability will you have? And what kind of situational limitations do you put on this so that the minute this pandemic is over, all of that stuff is deleted and shut down? Because I guarantee you, no one will want to delete those data sets. Someone will find a reason to repurpose it. They will think it's really useful for a future pandemic, but also look at all the other things that we could do with it. Still slightly puzzled by your your essentialism around data privacy, which is obviously an important thing, but I don't see why it's any more important than living and you know surviving or being able to go out of one's flat or other kinds of things. I mean, there are all sorts of horrible things which are being done uh, before you get to the technological thing. And in fact, in many ways, the worse the analog side is, the more one relies on the technology. I mean, obviously, it would have been much better if there were lots of testing facilities in the UK and if they had realised that they needed four times as many ventilators as they had. The absence of those things, in fact, could mean that technology does end up saving lives, which should have been saved in other ways. 
ways, but can't be saved. I guess we haven't demonstrated that any of this technology would, in fact, save lives, right? So like, that's the thing. Like, trust me. But what what is it that makes you think that the worst possible thing that could happen is some kind of privacy stuff? Why are we kind of essentializing the importance of privacy over other kind of human rights? Because I don't think that we necessarily have to give up privacy and civil liberties any more than is absolutely necessary in a crisis. So you're absolutely right in that right now, we are all willingly giving up a lot of our civil liberties because we're effectively under house arrest, right? Like all of us are. And we only leave our houses for very limited reasons during the course of the day. And we would probably need to justify that if we were found to be to be violating those actions. And you could argue that that is for the collective good. But I'm already looking, and I'm looking at Twitter as we're having this conversation right now. We've been in lockdown for what, three weeks, four weeks now? In Germany, Angela Merkel is just announcing right now a gradual reopening of some shops and schools. So this lockdown situation, while extremely inconvenient and very costly and really stressful for so many people, is temporary. And there's going to be at some point some sort of reopening and potentially reopening and then lockdowns, etc., until we get a vaccine. So we need to get the calculus right over what we want to give up. And if we're going to give things up, what for? So like right now in lockdown, we're giving up all sorts of civil liberties in order to save lives. And that that actually does work. So I'm happy to be in lockdown, even though it's really stressful and scary, because I know that that means it's not, I'm not going to be catching the virus and I'm not going to be exposing anyone to the virus in case I'm asymptomatic. I don't know if these apps will provide the protection and security that people seem to think they will. No, I mean, on that, you know, who knows how long it's going to last. I personally love the lockdown. So it's wonderful not to have to be flying places three times a week. So it's not so much about two weeks of the lockdown. I mean, this could be going on, it'd be 18 months till there's a, a vaccine that works properly. It's quite interesting how obsessed, particularly your generation, Pika, the, the kind of millennials are with data privacy and uh, and they see it as this kind of supreme human right. Whereas it's amazing how uh, you have parties like the Pirates Party and things like that, which are basically mobilising people around this as apart from kind of sexual rights and other, uh, you know, there's obviously the, the survival of the planet, but this is one of the kind of most popular sets of, of issues. And you end up in a situation where these are obviously very important issues. Nobody wants wants to live in in kind of Huxleyan, Wellian world. But at the same time, it does seem very strange to, to, to see this as so much more important than the other rights, particularly when, and this is what I would like to, to kind of explore a bit further, actually, it might be possible to make sure that any infringements on privacy are, as Anthony was suggesting earlier, made temporary, done in a, in a kind of regulated way. And, and maybe that's something which we should be worth looking at. At the beginning, Rika, you were talking a lot about about Europe and the European Union. I mean, to what extent is there a kind of opportunity for for the European Union to be a guarantor of, of these kinds of rights? You know, we there's a big fuss made about GDPR, and the the way that that was kind of reshaping the way that the world was was handling data. Could one have a kind of an equivalent which laid out some very clear cr- criteria, which could then be judiciable through the European Court of Justice and which would ho- actually constrain the ability of national governments to keep data forever, to do inappropriate things with it? 
I think that's what would be desirable. Yeah, I think, I mean, as I mentioned, what the European Commission put out in terms of um, guidelines or toolbox or whatever they were calling it, I think that they're on the right track there. The, the point we were making is exactly what you said earlier, namely, we should try to do this without infringing on privacy any more that is absolutely and strictly necessary. I mean, this is the point. I'm not saying privacy is the most important thing of all. I mean, yeah, it isn't more important than living, but this isn't, again, quite the choice we're making here. But the important thing is that we absolutely need to try to to make these infringements as, as small as possible. And, and temporary identification markers, that kind of stuff can definitely help. And I do believe that there's a role for, for the European Union, the European Commission to play here. Just to make this point again, I mean, this is very, in my mind this is also very much about long-term implications i believe that this corona crisis could become kind of what 9-11 was for surveillance in the united states because 9-11 kind of opened the floodgates when it came to state surveillance in the u.s and we're still to some extent suffering from that and the whole system was shaped by that and i think there is a danger that we're seeing the same now at a much grander scale because of corona and the only thing i'm saying is that we need to make very very sure that we're not going too far that we're not kind of throwing out things that you will never be able to back once you've you've thrown them out so anthony you made a career uh, well at least a decade or so's worth of career out of the global war on terror and looking at some unintended consequences of 9-11 what's the kind of danger of the guac the global war on corona well it's it's uh exciting and rather terrifying to think that we could be talking about uh, pandemics for the next 10 years. But I guess I, you know, I would want to come back to, I suppose, pick up a point that, that Stephanie made earlier. You know, you framed it, Mark, as if the technology here is kind of an alternative to the other methods. You know, the less we know through testing, the more we're going to turn to technology. And of course, that is the temptation. But I guess to me, it seems like, you know, there is a role for technology. I think it's very important that we have frameworks to keep it in check and to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand, that it's limited to what's really essential for public health. But I think that its role is going to be a supporting role. It's going to be supporting other more important public health interventions of which testing is one. And without testing, you can have as many, you know, tracking and tracing apps as you want. You, what do you do with that information? You'll come up with everyone has been within the, the vicinity of someone. And unless you can then get them tested and work out who can go out or who can't, you'll, you'll be overwhelmed. You know, and this could also be a lesson looking back at the global war on terror. The technology has its place, but we have to keep it in perspective and keep it in a broader context, both in terms of, of our values, but also in terms of what works and what makes a difference. So maybe last word to you, Stephanie, if you look at the kind of long term effects of the crisis for the use of digital technologies, what do you think they're going to be? I think going forward, anyone who's a strategist and anyone who works in public health is going to be wanting to know, how do we ensure that our early warning system for something like this is better so that we know, you know, to again, to have the, have the test capacity, have the ventilator and hospital capacity, like what does that actually need to look like in a post-COVID world? What does it mean to go into lockdown? Because we know, you know, just mathematically, if you go into lockdown a week or two earlier, that can be the difference of thousands and thousands of lives, right? So getting those questions right first before we even go into the technical part, I think is really important. Then there's this question of immunity passports. I think we have a massive 
both scientific piece of work to do of like, would that even work? But then an ethical one of well, what does that mean? Because you could have really perverse incentives where people deliberately might want to get infected in order to be able to hopefully survive it and then be allowed to reenter society, right? Which is perhaps not what we would want there. I mean, that goes against the whole idea of not overwhelming your health service. So, you know, we again, we sort of really think that through before we just rush to, to have immunity passports. And then I think the third thing would be really trying to understand if we wanted to build a system so that we had it in place and could turn it on the minute our early warning system were triggered saying, okay, we're, in, we're now in a pandemic situation. What kind of system would we want to be able to install instantly where we've got a culture and an oversight board and we know who's on that oversight board and our parliament is able to function so that we have parliamentary scrutiny. You know, none of those things are in place right now. We don't have any of them. So just before we go building the panopticon, I think we need to really just maybe the temptations to move fast, right? You know, move fast and break things. Conversely, I think in this kind of crisis, it would behoove us to move a little bit slower and get it right, not just for today, but for the next one. Great. It was wonderful to end with Foucault and the Panopticon. Been really fun talking to the three of you. I'm sure we'll come back as we find out both what the short and longer term implications of this crisis are for technology and for analog solutions. We have one thing left to do on the podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Ulrika, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I mean, this is a really easy one. And admittedly, I'm still reading it. So it is indeed still on my bookshelf, but I've been reading it for a long time. A book that I specifically want to recommend to you, Mark, is Shoshana Suboff's Surveillance Capitalism. I think this is the book to follow this discussion. Crucially important, explains how our system is indeed built upon surveillance in a way that wasn't necessary and how we need to to get this right. And if you run out of toilet paper, it will keep you going for months and months uh, with a thousand pages of it. It is a huge book. That's why I'm saying I've been reading it for, for a while. <laughs> What about you, Anthony? I guess also on the theme of political rights, I've been reading this book called The Shadow of Justice by a um, young political scientist called Katrina Forrester. And it's kind of an intellectual history of political liberalism since the war, focused, centered around the dominant book in that field, A Theory of Justice by John Rawls, but looking at the sort of intellectual antecedents and the influence of that kind of liberal political thought. And I guess, as the author would see it also, its limitations. And what about you, Stephanie? I'm reading two books at the moment, depending on my mood. So I'm reading Laura Spinney's Pale Rider, which is a history of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. And then I'm reading a book by a man named Richard Freeman called The Mirror of Yoga, Awakening the Intelligence of Body and Mind, which is all about yoga, which I'm practicing daily as a way of staying healthy and sane during lockdown. So one, one book to scare you and the other to calm you down. Yeah. <laughs> This is how I stay balanced, you know. Great. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. If you have, please do let people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours and above all by heading to whatever platform you use to download the podcast on and giving us a rating and a positive review. But for now, from Ulrika Franca, Anthony Dworkin, Stephanie Hare and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Research for this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marta Saletti. 